0: Hey guys, I'm really excited to share with you today a guest that I really respect and admire and um, also am fortunate enough to consider him a friend. His name is Shaheen Sadegi and he is a visionary and and I don't like to throw that term around loosely, but he really is. This is a guy that is literally shaping the environments in which we now experience retail, the way we shop, the way we eat, and the way we consume. And he's been out in front of this thing as a pioneer for decades now. And I think we take a lot of his creativity for granted, But I think today we're going to hear how far back and how deep his knowledge base goes and how long he's actually been doing the things that we now take for granted. Uncharted Supply Co., one of our new sponsors. Christian was a guest on my podcast. I highly recommend that episode. He's a bit of an adventurer, survivalist, marketer, and a great spirit, and has come up with an amazing product. Again, listen to the podcast for more on that. But now, a word from his company. The world is changing. Statistically, emergency situations are on the rise like no other time in history. Overpopulation, natural disasters, even terrorism are real daily concerns for many. With this in mind, Uncharted Supply Code developed the 72. So again, this is something that Christians came up with, and I don't think he's a doomsdayer, but I think what him and his team of experts, which consist of special forces guys, medical professionals, mountain guides, and so on, what they came up with was a way to solve one simple question. What would you give your family in an emergency if you weren't there to protect them? Their answers helped form the 72. The 72, 35 high quality items all organized with easy to understand instructions for even the most novice among us. At 11 and a half pounds and completely waterproof, it's extremely lightweight and perfect for your car, office, and home. The 72 is the most funded survival product in crowdfunded history and was also seen on the season premiere of Shark Tank this year. I've got two of these. Um, I selfishly bought one. I gave it to my wife and then I was like, mm, I think I need that thing and I put it back in my car and then. I felt super guilty, so I bought another one and put it in her car. So listen, here's the deal, guys. Hang in there with me on this. If you use promo code BREVITYCODE at checkout, you will get $35 off. So go to Uncharted Supply Co. That's unchartedsupplyco.com. The show is also brought to you by Town Park Brewery, Town Park Brew Co. They're going to be hosting their first of an ongoing series called Two Farm Tables and a Microphone at their brewery. Great name, combining visionary ideas with an unforgettable cuisine, all paired with the freshest Town Park beers. Their guest on April 26 is going to be Dan Clark. You may remember him from American Gladiator as Nitro. Dan Clark reminds us that we can choose to increase our happiness and live the life we deserve. Whether you're recovering from your own brush with death, or you're simply looking to live a fuller, more balanced, richly rewarding life. Guys, if you want more information on that, go to uh, townpark.com and it's townpark. There is an E there at the end of town. Hey guys, a little bit about our guest today, Shaheen Sadegi. So he was president of Quicksilver and has been involved in community redevelopment. His initial project, The Lab Anti-Mall, now 25 years young, continues to garner international acclaim in addition to The Camp, a decade-old sustainable and eco-friendly retail campus. Recently, Lab Holdings repurposed several California landmarks, including the Casino San Clemente Dance Hall and the historic downtown Anaheim Packing District. What he's been able to do there has been unbelievable in bringing a newness and a freshness to downtown Anaheim. On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. Sheen, welcome to the show. Welcome to Brevity Code. Thank you for joining us. You were just entertaining us with some uh, piano that I had no idea you even knew how to do. <laughs> Very cool. So I kind of view you as part sociologist, part philosopher, and part soothsayer. So in your role, like what do you consider yourself to be? are you a are you a curator of retail experiences, or are you a developer? Or are you are you all of those things? <laughs> that's interesting. Um,
1: well, thank you for having me, yeah. Brian. It's really good to see you, uh, big fan of your work, by the way. well ditto. um well, you know, I don't know if I actually like think about those things. you know, I really you you know what it's like. you know I think you're in the creative field, and much of what we do really has to do with you know how we feel and our surroundings and you know how the world activities and events, you know, I, I think it's just an accumulation of all of that. But I would say that the thing that always seems to fascinate uh sort of my interest and sort of stoke that, you know, feeling of discovery is has been uh culture. And uh and I know that's that word, you know, it it used to be more meaningful some years ago, particularly when it came to you know, connecting it to retail or development, but um, so it's a bit of a commercial overused word as the word community is but but I think for me it's it's really the archaeology of culture and just really understanding you know what's driving people and it's not like I wake up in the morning thinking, okay, here's what's driving people but <laughs> it's 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 really more about just uh, sensing. These interesting underlying movements, Um, just, you know, as an example, I uh, just recently found out that there are more people in America that practice yoga than actually play football.
0: I would not believe that to be true, but I suppose it is. And, you know, I just
1: found that fast. So to me, that's like, boom. That's awesome, by the way. There's something going on. Yeah. And so it's bigger than just some statistics. It's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I grew up in the Midwest, and football is a religion, (laughs) you know? Sure. And uh, so, and then when I look a little bit more into that, you would ask yourself, well, what is something going on here. You know, this is like people in other parts of the world have been doing yoga for 4,000 years. And why is it that all of a sudden, you know, sort of this Western culture, you know, is now interested in yoga,
0: and you had opened. And we're going to jump all over the place, guys that are listening out there. <laughs> um, you opened up one of the first yoga, the hot, the Bikram yoga, in Orange County, or was yes, it? Yes, yes. In, in what year was that?
1: Well, it was about seventeen years ago. So when we developed the camp, so that project went on the map. Uh, it was an environmental project in ninety nine, and we opened in two
0: thousand and two. <sighs> so. so again we're 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 going to we're going to put some baseline to your vision and how you're able to execute these things i mean i we have to really step back and think about that for a second that was 17 years ago mm. and now you're stating this fun fact and it's almost like the world you have to wait for the world to catch up to you. I mean, and so like you were talking about like noticing well, that this could
1: be good or bad. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. As right. you know, in the fashion industry, that's yeah. right.
0: Yeah, you, you you could be the sacrificial lamb <laughs> right. just as easy. But I, I think uh, you, you're you've been right more often than not, and and maybe today even you know at some point if if there has been a a stub toe or, or something you considered a failure, I think I think people would appreciate you know the the the, the triumphs and the overcomings of some negative situations uh, perhaps that you've been faced with as well as uh, you know sharing your your successes and your visions so i want to go back you said something in uh, new york times magazine in 1994 you said the american mall tries to be all things to all people which is hopeless people 1994 mm. i think that as we th- we hear about you know toys r us uh, seven hundred plus locations, or closer to eight hundred, uh, are going to close. We've got thirty-one thousand people that's going to displace. They've got but uh, forty thousand to sixty-five thousand square foot boxes. When you hear that, and when you hear about some of the other major retail closures, do you kind of go like shrug your shoulders and go, "Well, yeah, that was riding on the wall." Mm-hmm. Or like, wh- "Where, where do you?" What's your opinion on this, or is it an opportunity for people to repurpose existing projects and and make their communities better and create this culture you're talking about? Well, those are great questions, Ryan. Look, I think we have
1: been aware of the fact that there's this sort of this cultural shift that's happened in America for a good 25 years. So this is our 25 year in business. So the lab, our first project is literally 25 years this year. And I think, you know, much of that came from, you know, we drew from our background in the action sports surfing industry and how that really had its own sort of distinct culture and, you know, and how the relationship between that and, you know, other products and other cultures. And so, and I think our interest and involvement in youth culture back then. But I guess the best way for me to address that is, you know, just share with you a quick history. And this is something that I've said before. So if you've heard this, I apologize. But, you know, I really think much of it is based and rooted uh, in our background here in this country. And really the short of it is that after World War II, I always say, you know, most of the world was destroyed. So Europe was destroyed. Russia was destroyed. Japan was destroyed. So for any of these other countries to survive, they had to buy their goods and services from us in America, right? whether it was a car or a refrigerator or air conditioner or what have you. And through this, you know, we dev- developed the most powerful middle class and we developed the most powerful manufacturing base I mean, until recent years where China's labor force took over. So we paid dearly for this because really one of the things that happened for us as a country, we became sort of addicted to consumption you know just building our middle class and even today we represent four and a half percent of the world population and we we're consuming about 25% of the goods and services which is pretty massive yeah and so through this process we had developed this mentality that everything had to be homogenized so there was this the notion back then was predictable Meaning that if we went out to eat, you know we'd go to McDonald's. And if I went from Michigan to Ohio, I found the McDonald's in Ohio. And if I went from Ohio to California, I looked for that McDonald's in California right. because we knew we wanted you know we we wanted products that were predictable. And by the way, this was the case at at every product line. And, you know if you stayed in a hotel, you'd stay at the Holiday Inns. and you know if you're a traveling salesman, you stayed at a Holiday Inn or Howard Johnson, but if you went with your family, you did the same thing. So there wasn't much of a you know sort of discovery. Um and again it that happened with our food and whether it was Campbell's chicken soup or you know right. So and at some point and I'm just going to say in recent years <clears throat> I mean I felt this probably a good 25 30 years ago just through travel cuz you know we did extensive travel in the previous industry that I was in with action sports but you know, I felt that people are this neck call it the next generation was really looking for a little bit more personalization. As a matter of fact, you know, the old days, the instrument of measure for success was does the pro- does does the product have legs? And really what that meant is like if you can roll them around yeah. the country, then it would you're a successful yeah. business person. Yeah. But if you were just a uh, you know, badass product that was locally. It was was just a local guy. It just has, you know, and, you know, for some reason it was kind of like a negative, you know, I mean, nobody looked at it as like, man, this is like amazing local product, you know? Right. And so, interesting enough, today is just the complete opposite of that. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, anything that's homogenized seems to have less of a value and less of an emotional attachment.
0: Right. People it, love to hate on Starbucks. I feel like they still go because there's always yes, a line. Yes, yes. But they love to yes, hate on it. Yeah, it, very
1: true. And so, if you, if you know, if one really looks at what's going on with with the products that that and services that we really do have this emotional attachment, it's all sort of like curated storytelling. Uh, I call it localization, personalization, customization, as opposed to homogenization. Yeah. And much of it obviously has to do because of technology, because you know, we have this thing within our organization that we're convinced of that everybody's cool this is no longer about if you live in new york you're cool and if you live in la you're cool and all the other stuff in the middle is just
0: because of the advent of social media and the awareness and the access to follow people they want to be inspired by absolutely so i mean if you want you can you can find anything you want
1: and you can buy anything you want and we all see the same thing and we all get inspired by you know similar things so i think the notion and having this Mm. internal comfort within oneself you know if you're in any kind of a business just know that everybody's cool so that you're not going out and designing products or or retail centers or apparel whatever it is like these are for cool people well,
0: yeah I mean do yeah. you remember you're, we were both a couple of old apparel guys here I mean, yeah do you remember you'd you'd refer to the east and west coast and then there's what the flyover states yeah yeah right yeah I mean that's what they were called it's terrible but that's kind of the reality of that era and that generation. And like you're saying, Mm. this new generation with access has a much different perspective. Do you, do you think these, uh, I don't want to call them developments. They're, they're retail experience environments. They're these wonderful visionary, um, experiments that you are putting out there years before their, their true relevance comes. Is I mean, and you know, you you travel to places like Dallas, and 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 they are becoming a little more hip. And certainly, there's cool places in Dallas for sure. I'm not slamming Dallas. Anyone listening? I'm just saying that <laughs> uh, these particular places that you're rolling out. Do you think the United States specifically is ready for those little these little pocket venues that you're putting out, or do you think that this is still a a West Coast niche? I mean, I hear you when you say, okay, no, you just said everything, everyone's cool, and I agree with that, but. I guess, what's your game plan on that? Well, I think,
1: Ryan, there's, I mean, there's a couple of different things going on. I think, first of all, I am convinced everybody's cool. And I look at that as an opportunity. I look at that as, wow, new markets. Um, I also believe that the appetite for coolness and the appetite for newness has definitely been at the best of, I remember, in my in a history of being in business, um, and you know the proof is in the pudding. I mean, one of the exciting things that you know I always say is, first of all, you know, if, if let's use your texas story if, if i go to texas i'm excited because i'm going to go have some texas barbecue i'm sure. not looking for a macaroni grill
0: right maybe some alligator it's, it's going to be <laughs> you know, interesting yeah. so
1: like i want to celebrate the local cuisine sure. and i want to you know if i go to portland oregon i always say i'm not going to order a budweiser i'm going to order a crafted beer i want to have the conversation with the beer brew, brewmaster and i think everybody's feeling that way and and then when i travel around the country and i often do I'm like blown away how cool everything is. I mean, I was, Denver is cool, Boulder is cool, <laughs> Portland is great, Seattle is amazing, you know, yeah. Austin is incredible, yeah. uh, I mean, you just, you go around the country, Chicago is just a badass town right now. I mean, there is so much good stuff, and whether it's the local music scene or whether it's the music or in the food scene or it's the crafted beer scene. So that's to me is an amazing opportunity. So, one of the things that I'm finding is, you know, the cities uh, and the leadership that's smart are really promoting, you know, this localization and mm-hmm. celebration because it's actually great for commerce and it's also very, very important to keep the young, talented next generation within those cities, you know?
0: Yeah, I love that. So you and I were, um, we had lunch, I don't know, it was a few months back, and I was picking your brain about a bunch of things, as, as I like to do, and you made a comment about something to the effect of, if you're going to start a business, you better not be able to get it shipped by Amazon. <laughs> and I think that speaks to what you're saying. You know, as far as these cool demographic pockets and these, these retail experience, or, or whether it's it's a music scene in a particular city. Um, I think that's the stickiness that, that we're looking for uh, because I think outside of that, you're starting to brand and everything's been done. You turn into a me too, and you're going to get clobbered by Amazon anyway. So mm. do you have any advice for, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but just, you know, if I'm a budding entrepreneur and and I, I'm, you know, I love fashion music and the arts you know, I'm sure you get hit up by people that are, you know, wanting to get some, some sage knowledge from you. Do you say, hey, don't, don't, like, what do you tell them? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, again,
1: you know, there, there's no rules, you know, it's just, I, I think it's, you know, what you feel. And um. my take is that the Amazons of the world are not going to go away. And really what's happened, you know, there's a lot of conversation as you know, across the country about, you know, Amazon and retail and what's going on. Um, Anything that's a commodity becomes non-emotional and it becomes unimportant in a sense. Uh, Mm, And you know, as an example, it doesn't really make sense for me to drive into a grocery store and park my car and worry about the thing getting dinged by a big shopping cart and then going inside and navigating my shopping cart and throwing a twelve pack of toilet paper on there and then waiting that miserable line to get paid and hope that you know you're not gonna run into your neighbor buying <laughs> toilet paper, you know. <laughs> and then you come back out of your car, you load it up and you take it home. It's like, you know what, my time is just Worth more. It's not a good fun shopping experience. Right. It's there's nothing fun about it. So should I do that or should I go on Amazon order my toilet paper and have deliver it delivered my house the next day? It's like it just doesn't make sense. So I think so much of it also has to do with you know our time calculation and and lifestyle and what's important to us. So yeah, of course, uh, it makes a lot of sense to buy that stuff on Amazon and. And also, I think, as is what I said earlier, that you know, we're, I, I really feel as a culture, particularly this next generation, you know, we're shifting from, you know, necessary material things and cons- pure consumption for our soul satisfaction to more spiritual. And mm. so, one of the things that I really sense is we're making a shift from consumption to connection. Mm. Okay. And connection. I think is really the magic word here because <clears throat> I mean you could still go out and do a cool little surf line or a para line, and I'm not going to say don't do it. It's not going to work because it could, but you have to be able to have that magic of making that connection. Otherwise, it just becomes a commodity, and if you falls into that commodity,
0: then you're in nowhere land. So, <coughs> on that notion, let's let's vacillate a just one one. Shade into apparel for a minute, and we're going to kind of come back. and I want to hear about the lab and explain to everyone what what you've exactly done with your developments and projects. Um, the The notion of this connection, this connectivity to brands, there there seems to be this tipping point too, where you're a cool brand, and you know maybe you're doing several million bucks, and maybe you just reach profitability, and then all of a sudden. You start opening up stores that are less desirable, and the hip kids are off you. And now you're a sellout. And now you've pushed this rock uphill for so long, and and the company's just about to make money, and the owners are finally going to see a, a a payday. And sales start going the other way, or they flatten out, and now you're this kind of broad, this broad. Uh, brand that has this appeal that maybe is now getting watered down. And and you're, now your marketing message is spread because you're trying to capture more market share and appeal to more people because you feel your base slipping away. But all that does is dilute the brand and make you less genuine. I mean, these are real brand fights, right? These are real things that, that brands go through in evolution and stages. And I keep, I get asked quite a bit. Uh, I do a bunch of talk to, you know, a bunch of CEO kind of groups. And I always talk about like what I think is sort of the end of the mega brand. And I like to get your opinion on that. Um, Like I'm of the opinion, we may not see a brand size of a Quicksilver. Now, okay, look, there's going to be exceptions to the rule. Okay, every, you know a Tom's comes along and does some, uh, you know, a give portion to a brand and becomes this thing that's bigger than anyone could ever expect. But from straight apparel industry, you and I go way back. What do you think? Like, I look at, you know, brands like maybe obey is as big as brands are going to get now. I feel like there is so much focus on the connectivity and, and the youth identifying with not only one brand, but several brands. Um, in combination with fast fashion, so they're they're picking their brand because that's that's whether it's a, bo- a team rider that they love or, or a role model they identify with, but they're mixing and matching these things. I just I don't see billion dollar brands in apparel popping up anymore. I think there's going to be this this saturation point, and the kids are done. Am I off base? What do you think? Well. You know, again, Ryan, You, I don't necessarily, I don't think
1: there's any rules, you know, but I, I think that, you know, we've all learned a lot by running $2 billion surf brands, and uh, you know, at the time that much of this was going on, we we're, were on top of our game, whether it was, you know, when I was with Gotcha or Quicksilver, and, you know, we didn't really have a roadmap, you know, we just sort of grew, you know, and we we. For a long time, we didn't have anybody to follow in a sense, right uh, But again, I think the world has changed. So what, as an example, I think that you know you're a brand and the brand has this connection, and you have made that connection with a group of people that understand your goods and services and have a passion for it. And so the old model was, you know, I go sell the crap out of it across the country, and that's how I made money. And when we did made those decisions, we didn't necessarily have any kind of a romantic relationship with, let's say, a Macy's or a Belk's or any of the big department stores. Mm -hmm. But that was really our only conduit to get to the consumer. Right. So we had to go through that tunnel. And today, there are lots of different channels. Of course, you know, a lot, many of the retailers have opened their own stores, and, you know, that's been a conversation that's been going on for decades. But also, the challenge is finding that like minded customer that subscribes to the brand on a global basis and keeping within that realm and not necessarily try to be all things to all people. And, you know, I think we're, Most of these brands, historically, and I've watched it very closely, have made the mistake, which was the beginning of the downfall, is where they start, you know, again, I'll use Quicksilver as an example. I mean, I used to love the brand and think they did a phenomenal job, but I remember being in Paris on Champs-Elysees, and I'm walking by a Citroën dealership, and there is a Roxy seat covers for a Citroën. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm looking at that going, why would they have to do that right. in order to grow? Right. Because all of a sudden, you know, you talk about this core and right. authenticity that you can't buy. Right. And, you know, and I think when you start making those types of decisions, I think they're just short term, you know, to the net operating income and long term destruction of the brand. And you know, it's just I remember many, many years ago I read a quote by Yves Saint Laurent that said, you know, a brand is like a cigarette. The the harder you puff on it, the, sh- the shorter yeah. it's lifespan, you know? <laughs> so I think with a lot of these brands, you know, we puffed on it pretty hard. I think one other um, yeah. consideration here is that today's generation is really bright, really wise, really savvy. And, you know, I mean, they get it. So if you sell out, they get it. So I I think there's it's a
0: much riskier situation. Um, yeah, I um, I agree, and and, and uh, you know, there are well kept brands, and there are you know, I, again, one of my favorite brands of all time, influential on me as a kid, uh, and wanted uh, or was one of the catalysts for for me being in the apparel business was Stussy. You know, it's still an example to this day of a well-kept brand mm-hmm. they've been around a long time they have a ton of street cred they can still work with mm-hmm. pretty much anyone they want to they kind of but that this is exactly kind of making my own point which was they've also kind of consciously slow puffed that cigarette to your example mm-hmm. right they've they've really kept their distribution tight um I'm sure there was lean years where they probably had opportunities mm-hmm. to go wider and and they did and they chose not to to my knowledge mm-hmm. and I think that's that's what I say. Well, I, think I think that's there's a gonna good be,
1: example. My One you know, of my favorites is uh, probably Supreme. Sure. It's amazing.
0: It's amazing. What, what
1: <laughs> it's they continue done. to do. <laughs> it's just amazing. And the different generations. And it's just a simple skate brand. And most of the skate industry is taken you know, pretty hard knock these days. But... But I think that's a really good example of keeping to that core customer and let people chasing and ha- and having the desire as opposed to just sort of, you know, um, basically sticking your brand all over the board uh, across products that have no relationship to the culture, you know?
0: Right. Um. Well, I think that speaks perfectly to what you were saying about the brand connection. Mm. So I, I would, I'd want to. Roll it back a bit, and I'm going to give you another quote um, that I found that you said in the same article, and then and then we're going to dive a little bit into uh, the lab. This is the New York Times article? Yeah. Wow, you've done some research. Well, you, <laughs> uh, so you said, any retailer who would go into a mall, I don't want them. Size is the enemy of cool. I mean- do you well, still believe that? or are
1: you, are you you know I do me believe in that. And by the way, size is the enemy of cool. Is oh, a, Supreme's a big brand, is by a, the way. Is a, they're yeah, doing Supreme a lot of big brand. They're yeah. doing a lot of business. Yeah. No, they're doing tons of business, but but they're doing it right. Yeah. Well, there is a there is a couple of things I want to share with you. Um, size is the enemy of cool. The originator of that quote is Michael Thompson, mm. one of my heroes, and it always resonated with me when he said that years ago. But uh, I think that, well, let me give you a non-apparel example. And then I'll give you an apparel example that we all made the mistake of not realizing at the time. So, you know, about four or five years ago, we opened the packing house, which is all food in Anaheim. Uh, and it's been really pleasantly, surprisingly you know, really well it's received. It's amazing, Jean. You're a humble guy. You. Thank you. Really beautiful. No, it, it it really met all <laughs> our expectations. And I know when I went to do this project, I started in 2010. The economy was still fairly challenging, and we were still in that dark tunnel, not knowing when we we're going to come out on the sure. other end. And it was very, very enticing for for me to go out and do national tenants. I wanted the coffee house in there, and I could have easily brought in a Starbucks. Sure. I wanted a sure. Santa Fe shop. I could have easily brought a Subway or somebody that pays higher. Right, you're going to get an anchor and, tenant. They're going to pay bills. You know, sure. I could just get the check in the mail and- No brainer. Go surf in Hawaii. Right. You know? But, the, and what I've always said to my people is that if we put a Starbucks in there, it's not that their product is bad. Right. They sell a lot of coffee. Right. And they've got it down to a science in terms of their delivery system. Right. But being in the packing house is good for Starbucks, but bad for us. Right. Because of what it does, it helps elevate their brand.
0: And it dilutes and your it brand.
1: And it helps dilute my brand.
0: <laughs> right. And
1: I want to be in control of my brand. Right. By having an artisan coffee house in there, it helps my brand, and then it helps that core local yes. handcrafted coffee house brand. Yes. And that's where it's a win-win situation, you know. And the, and these are it's like playing chess. These are strategic moves. Right. Um now with apparel it was the same thing. You know right. at the time where our brands were super hot. The the, the the number one youth market youth brand in the world, you know, for many years was Gotcha and then Quicksilver and sure. and your brand
0: by the way, you know. Uh, no, nah, we were we were a tick
1: on the gorilla. Well, is what we were. It was a, it was it was it was really well desired in in the in the young uh, in the youth market. But the point was when we went and sold that brand to a department store in Ohio, it helped the department store it diluted our brand. Absolutely. And
0: right, well this is some of the magic that that you create. So we talk about the packing house and bringing in artisan coffee, but then to further go deeper into your theory, you would then bring in, you know, another type of curated vendor that would be a complement to the artisan coffee maker. Now you're creating this neighborhood of like-minded, correct? Yeah. You know, brands brands and business owners, by the way, that think the same way, which means they're going to promote the same way, which means they're going to have, oh, okay. you know, which means they're going to have the same like-minded youth culture, whether that's a craft beer brand and all of a sudden, you know, or a barber shop or whatever those elements that you bring in, they're all going to speak to each other and they're all going to be connected in the right way. And in the genuine way. Right. And, so let's let's talk let's let's go into the lab because I think it it really is the baseline for your your visions and what and what they've been and I just I think this is so extraordinary and I don't want to use any less word than that because so maybe why don't you start and give us a baseline of what the lab is and then I, I've got a a bunch of questions from there.
1: Okay, well again that that's that's my first project. Um, you know we. I was involved, as you know, with the surf industry, running a public company. We we're looking for that quarter-quarter growth, which was a challenge by itself. Uh, it was the second apparel public company I was involved in, because I, most people don't know, but I spent about a decade with the VF Corporation. And uh, we went through a couple of LBOs, and they were a public company as well. But uh, the thing that I really realized... Through that experience, well, I realized a few things. I think the thing that triggered the lab in my mind was that I was so frustrated with what was going on with retail, particularly when you travel internationally and then you land back home. You're just going, "Man, why are we doing this?" You know. And I don't know if I could pinpoint the exact date, but I'm just going to say it was probably 1991, and. You know, we were we did a lot of right things. You know, we set up office in uh, Buretts, France, and and Japan and Asia was doing well for us. Our American business, you know, in 1991, we were doing tons of business with the Broadway stores, and they went Chapter 11, and then they finally went bankrupt. and we were doing business with Buffums, and they went out, and Bullocks, and they <laughs> Bullocks, went out, yeah. and, and Robinson's was <laughs> sure. a great store that got bought up by the May Company, and. Most people don't remember this, but Macy's West, when the Finkelsteins used to run it, they filed Chapter Eleven. And so I'm. And by the way, that's California only. And we did tons of business with a national chain that was actually fairly decent. This is pre, PacSunwear days. It yeah. was a uh, merry-go-round, and yeah. you know, so it's the whole world just sort of fell apart in terms of retail. And you know. I was looking at it and and thinking, like, why is this going on? I mean, it's it's not that people are not spending money. It's right. just that this next generation just, you know, wasn't necessarily a mall goer. And the whole department store thing, again, it was goes back to my homogenization. It wasn't personalized. And, you know, your average cool person, you know, if they wanted to go on a date, they weren't going to ask their girlfriends to meet them at the mall. You know, like, that's the shit that went on in the 70s when I was growing up, you know? Because the malls were new, they replaced the downtowns. But in today's world, that's that is just uncool to do that. Mm. And also, when it came to, um, you know, retail, you know, you walk, you know, people didn't want to walk into a traditional department store and get sprayed with some cheap perfume <laughs> and take the escalator and the elevator, you know, go to the third floor, walk through the lingerie and all this I other have, stuff, yeah, just to go out and buy a shirt. I mean, it just that's didn't, real. It just was not a real experience, and right. it was it, there was something uncool about it. Yeah. So I, I think that's where I started to see the breakdown, and and I honestly kept thinking in my mind, you know, running sort of the two largest surf brands uh, on the globe back then, you know, like man, somebody's going to open this retail concept, and I had been thinking about the lab idea for many years, but I never really because I wasn't really a retailer, you know, it was more on the manufacturing. And I just, you know, at some point I just got really frustrated that nobody would kind of go out and try anything new. I think concurrently, I was, I remember this, it's clear as daylight. I was flying back from Hong Kong. Uh, I was on a United Airlines. And back then, you know, there was a lot of smoking on the planes. Uh, And it was kind of a ridiculous thing where, you know, the last five seats were (laughs) smoking or the left side of the plane was, Smoking, and you know, I'm sitting there, and you know, the people from that part of the world are Uh, chimneys, chimneys, yeah. (laughs) And I'm there's all this smoking going on in the flight, and it's thunderstorms, and I'm bouncing around the Pacific, Uh, and it's dark, and I'm beat because you know we're just kept going around. You know, you're in New York doing the road shows, and then well, of course you have to go to Boston because we work with Fidelity as well, and then from there, well, I'm in Boston, I might as well go take check on to be a ritz and because it's shorter flight to europe and next thing you know you just keep going around and around and i didn't have any kids back then so i think that was kind of like my life you know and so and then i realized at that moment when i'm getting bounced and i was just mentally and physically just sort of exhausted thinking what am i doing that has any significance and Mm. i'm basically making board shorts
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Sure. And uh, look, there was more to it than that, obviously. But you know, at some point I just realized that it just what I was doing was so unimportant, you know? Um, and I think that's where I decided that, you know, I I wanted to do something that was maybe a little bit more of a game changer. And concurrently, when all of this was going on. We were looking for places to sell our products. As I mentioned, many of the department stores were starting to fold, and we didn't have the specialty base, you know, such as Pack back then. And so we talked about opening our own stores, which we eventually did. But that was challenging, you know, because most of the surf shops kind of went nuts on us, not liking the idea. But yeah. I had looked at this Ralph Lauren store back in New York when he opened. Um, on Madison Avenue many many years ago, I actually lived in New York at the time, and I realized what difference that made. You know, for Ralph Lauren, it was a it was a sort of a museum for him to showcase his product. And then, hmm. you know, soon after all of the commotion, I realized that sales actually at Macy's and all these other department stores that he did business actually went up. Because mm, right. he, he, it was his opportunity to showcase brand So, you know, I yeah. think we had to convince the in, industry. So we got into that. But what I also recognize is that right behind me, there was these really cool brands that were coming up. One of them was Sean Stucy, you sure. know, and the other was Mossimo, was doing really well at yeah. the time. Yep. And uh, I, I guess he worked with Moss at the time. A, so, yeah, yeah, a lot I, of years
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a twisted past. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, and I think, and I thought to myself, well, you know, these. Brands were growing really fast, and they're definitely cool. And like, what are they gonna do? Like, you know. And so, this idea of the lab came about. It stands for little American businesses because I really realized that the mm. funnest part of the industry was growing these brands, and they're young, they're energetic, and and you know, you're not selling cheap product to department stores. You know, there was just you know. The energy was into the youth, and so I thought, you know, maybe th- this is a situation where, you know, I can open this place and I can get Moss to open a store and Sean Stucy to open a store and just all of these like-minded people mm-hmm. to open a store and then put in a cool coffee house because, you know, this is pre-Starbucks days. You know, sure. there was two Starbucks in Orange County—one but then they were both on PCH, one in Corona and Mar, and the one in Laguna—and so. You know, it was like, for me, I was thinking like, I know that they're not going to want to go into a mall. So let me build the place. And so when I decided to do this, and it was very risky, obviously, and I was scared shitless. And uh, I went and talked to Sean. And Sean said, yeah, I love the idea, but if Moss does it, I don't want to be in there next to <laughs> <laughs> And then I went and talked to Moss so and Moss says, shit, I don't want to be next to Sean. <laughs> and I didn't really like figure out that part of the equation. Like, Oh my God, these guys are like so competitive. You sure. Know? I think back then nobody was thinking, yeah, let's all kind of be like-minded. You know, it was more like, yeah. you know, a competition. So, and, and, and at some point I just, really just didn't think I could pull it off. So I said, you know, screw it. I'll just go get Urban Outfitters. And Urban had, we were store number 19. They were absolutely on fire. And uh, and I had brought in Urban, and then we did everything else around it. And, you know, I know Yoki opened a really cool store. Yeah, the Modern It was Modern Amusement was like the Store. The
0: furniture store. Yeah, he right? was, and he had fabrics. And
1: yeah. he's just one so of my let's, favorites.
0: So let's stop there. <clears throat> so... Let me set the table for everyone. So as as you're hearing, you know, Shaheen kind of set up this vision. I I want to paint a bit of a picture here. So in proximity to what would be the future location of the lab, about less than a mile would be one of the showcased malls in the United States called South Coast Plaza. So think about this idea for a second. Here's this guy who has no basis in commercial real estate, right? That I know of. I mean, yeah, I think you, you own some things, but not right. right? right. And you're running a, a vertical brand, a manufacturing, you're flying around the world and you're getting this idea. Cause you're seeing all this stuff and you say, okay, there's this great piece of dirt on the same street that is also located with one of the premier in proximity to one of the premier retailers in the United States. That is such a wild thought like, okay, I'm going to do this deconstructed, irreverent product mix. I think now when we hear this, it doesn't sound so crazy, but you're the first guy to do it. Like you laid it down (laughs) and in the face and at the doorstep of South Coast Plaza, which was less than a mile away. I I think that's like an exemplary example of the, the maverick spirit that really is like a shape shifting movement for specifically Orange County, which always has this um, stigma of being this, you know, suburban kind of not cool. And there's very much cool things to have, but I think you're at the forefront of this. So I just, I think it's pretty wild that will take me through the mindset that day. I, I know you're on your flight to Hong Kong getting smoked out with, with that, but you drive by that dirt lot and you think, I can do this. I'm going to buy this. And do, and the people mm-hmm. will come. Or, or what did they not? Like, did you not have fear? Did you feel intuitively, man, I just feel like something's coming and I'm going to miss it or I'm going to be the guy to bring the change. Mm-hmm. Like, what was that moment?
1: Well, you know, Ryan, I think, you know, it's kind of like, have you ever skydived, you know, when they swing that door open and you've kind of been. Trained for a couple of days. To it's jump. on the list, and, but I you know, done when they open that door, it's like you got to take the dive. Yeah, <laughs> and I think really it's that kind of a feeling. And I think you know, I thought about it obviously for many years and wanted to do it, but never really had the balls to do it. And the, you know, I had a great job. I love my job. I think I had the best job in the country. You know, and that was part of the problem. You know, you get in that comfort zone, but I think once that door opened, I just had to take the dive. You know, I didn't really have a choice. I kind of set myself up where I. Just didn't. There was no going back. I, I think the other part of the equation was that you know I was thirty eight at the time, and I thought you know if I really screw this up, I'll uh, I'll go get another job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if I don't do it now, I will probably be too old to get back into the corporate world. You know, so all, I think all of that was going on as well in my mind. But so, but the bigger picture was, you know. I've been in Orange County for many years, you know, lived in Laguna, and I'm looking at the music scene back then. This is where, you know, that whole Seattle grunge thing kicked in, and we had, you know, Sublime and Sugar Ray, and I mean, we had great music, and we had great fashion came out of here because of these, you know, surf brands, you know, yeah. we had... I, I believe we have like eight, nine million, billion dollars Excuse me action sports industry going on. It was yeah. a big business, yeah. you know? Yeah. Social distortion, corn. I mean, there was, yeah. I mean, That's all right. of this, like I'm, so I'm looking at it on a global basis. I'm saying, whoa, 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 we're influencing like oh, the yeah. planet. For sure. And when I say influencing, it wasn't like the American lifestyle. It was California, not just, Cal- it was Southern California. Like yeah. everybody wanted to wear Vans and you go to France, the kids wanted to look like Southern California. And, I'm thinking, like, why is it that within our own backyard, we're still, like, have strip centers and malls? We got to go to like, mall. whoa, 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 there is a disconnect going on here. Right. And I think that's what gave me the confidence of, yeah, like... That's huge. And I think on top of that, you know, we live in a very, you know, I jokingly say, you know, it's a beige environment, you know, another beige building with a red tile roofs and everything. So I think for me, it was, like, that's why we came up with the word anti-mall just as a joke because, um, you know... I also felt, you know, I think we've traveled enough and we've seen uh, things around the world that have have influenced me for 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 many many years. You know, like as an as an example, I remember back in the '80s, I spent a month up in uh, Machu Picchu with the Inca Indians, and it was one of the most influential things in my life. Um, and I remember that there was actually no retail store in 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 the upper hills of Cusco, and there was, uh, what they would do is they would get together on Fridays, and it was kind of like their open market, and the corn guy would bring his corn, and the sweater maker would bring the sweater, and yeah, it was kind of a barter system, wow and they would just exchange things, and you know, and then what I really noticed was that, like, everybody would wear their coolest outfits, like the girls would show up wearing like wedding dresses for god's sakes you know they look like you know and the guys would wear the cool hats and and so it was like it wasn't about shopping and buying your vegetables man it was about like this social connection experience and i just and that's where you know guys met girls and girls met guys and marriages happen and you know, like there's so much the social fabric just came around this so i think this idea of this retail experience, bringing people together and making the connection, like all of that, like, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, that's where this is just when coffee houses were just starting in America. It wasn't about the coffee. It was about creating these places for people to connect and have a bonfire in a sense. So I think all of that you couldn't do in a mall. You know, you can't have a bonfire in a mall. So I think all of that just kind of came Together for us, and that's why we wanted something that was like this, you know, we, we didn't want it to be, we weren't looking for perfect marble and chandeliers. Exactly. And, you know, we we had cornfields when we first opened, so you could plant your own vegetables well, at the lab. It was like exposed years.
0: rebar, yeah. Yeah. right? Yes. And kind of yeah. like broken out cement, and it almost looked like it might fall on you. I mean, it was. I, and what, that was the whole, the whole idea was just, you know, completely sort of anti
1: this shiny, glitzy, you know, Orange County yeah. Type of a thing, you know, and and um and we we wanted people to get involved, you know. I I wanted sort of a hippie community center, you know. It it's like a lot of the tile on the they're still there, by the way. We would buy you know leftover tiles from on State Street and have customers actually tile the wall so they have their own markings. So that people help build it, they
0: really did, you know. Yeah, Um yeah, that's that's walking the walk. I mean, that's that's that on authenticity that goes deep into the fabric, which is why And back
1: then people didn't really have a relationship with the mall. Like right. know, it's a mall, but like who owns it and you you know you know and I think we wanted we just wanted the whole different experience. So it was it was
0: like their own commune, you know? Right. So but then there's this there's there's you definitely have there's a gift and I forget the word you you used earlier when you were sensing something was happening, but you realize most people don't sense Retail shifts are coming. That's that most people are sheep, right? They are not the shepherd. You are the shepherd. So now you go across the street. The lab is a smashing success. You have great brands in there. You continue to to get great brands in there, and new generations have literally been through there. So I remember even having conversations with you about the other project, uh, the following project which was the camp. so this this was a an entirely different departure, different architecture, as you said earlier, it was an environmental play. You bring in one of the first yoga studios in Orange County. you' you brought in there was a scuba diving place. there was uh, there was a, a bouldering area. There was a rock climbing wall, I believe, mm-hmm. was that? Mm-hmm. there? there in in your beautiful store seed seed people's market. Mm-hmm. and and it's, again, I look at that whole environmental and it was there vegan. There was mm. like a vegan joint. Like mm. I feel like all that stuff now, you know, you might be listening and be thinking like, well, yeah, well, no, this right. was a long time yeah. ago. So how do you, is it just via your, your travels and your world vision? You think that you're able to sense these shifts? You're talking about, forecasting consumers' needs before they even realize that they even are gravitating. There's like a deep undercurrent you're connected with that's pretty remarkable. So... When you do the camp versus the lab, one's a lot more sort of refined than the other. Was that another leap of faith? Like, oh, man, I think this is coming, (laughs) and I hope I'm right. Like, take me through that. Well, you know, Ryan,
1: I think it's a bunch of different instruments. You know, it's honestly, it's usually not one thing, but it also is an accumulation of several things that kind of influence. You know, it's honestly, look, I played music growing up, so it's kind of like, why is it that certain songs sound really good for the time, you know, and then years later, they still sound amazing. Like, I'm still looking at listening to Motown and things from the 70s, and I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds so good right now, you know? Yeah. But, or it's like, you know, I think, like, Picasso would be a good example. Like, the guy is actually, most people don't know, he's just an amazing classic painter. Like, when you look at his early, early work, you know, when he was in Barcelona, I mean, the stuff was like, you know, very serious, traditional, you know, and and then you would look at the work that actually he got to be well known on. It's all cubism, which looked like a little kid drew it for an untrained eye, yeah, know? right. But that's he had to learn how to sort of unpaint before he, you know, his best work came out. And I think for me, I honestly maybe look at things through that lens, you know, because I think the malls just got so beautiful and shiny and perfect and blah, blah. I mean, I just knew like, "Mm," you know, (laughs) um, so, and then there was a couple of, so that was one of the, you know, and I think we've always sort of thought that way, you know, I do remember just going back to the lab. I was reading an article on the wall street journal uh, cover story that Mall of America was pulling their benches out because they didn't want kids hanging out, and they referred to these kids as cotton candy eating, bubble gum chewing, hot dog on a stick kind of a. And I'm like, whoa, 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 man! We just sold a couple of billion dollars worth of surf gear, and you know, I looked at this as this kid, as they, as they call it, as like, man, they were into. Clean oceans, they were into politics, they were into technology, yeah. they were into, I mean, this was a much smarter kid than when I grew up, you know? And so I looked at that as whoa, talk about a disconnect. And that's where, you know, the lab idea, like I'm convinced this generation is gonna rock the world, you know? The camp, interesting enough, same thing happened. You know, there was an article. My, I was I'm telling you, I was in on my life cycle reading this thing, and it talked about this young guy that I believe he went to Brown and graduated from Brown in Rhode Island and came out and got an MBA and then went to New York and started the tech company and went public. And, you know, this is in uh, 97, 98, when tech kind of went haywire Uh, and Built this giant business and, you know, and then, you know, the whole tech bubble happened and he ended up losing the company, ended up in a divorce, moved to Montana, bought a house, retired, and the guy was like 32. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, this guy just freaking packed in 70 years of life and into 32 years, like this is just not sustainable. And I think that article, honestly, is what kind of like triggered this thing in my mind. Like, man, there are so many young, successful, wealthy people. And so where's life going with this thing, you know? And I do remember going up to the Bay Area and talking to several really successful people at the time that were in that tech space. And I would ask him, okay, you're, so you're not even 30 yet, and you've hit sort of the American dream, and you've accomplished things. And so, like, what's on your agenda? And I would say, if I talked to ten of these guys, eight of them would say, you know what I want to do? I want to like freaking go to Patagonia and climb. I want to I want to go climb Everest, or I want to mm. go to I want to save Africa. You know, and it was amazing because once they hit that point and they were young enough to have this aspirational. You know, energy. That it was all about either giving back or going into the nature or healthy living or something that in that rom. You know, and in my own personal life, you know, I had kids then I was really into the outdoors, and I know that you know a lot of us that were. I mean, I was never. I'm I'm a horrendous surfer. But- <laughs> You know, but I know a lot, like a lot of my friends that were like really good surfers. Now they yeah. started to mountain bike, and they were doing you know yeah. multi sports, and they were getting into you know the outdoor life. You know, and I think I um, realized like this health and wellness thing is really like. So what year was it? A big deal. This is ninety nine. Okay, and I decided to do a project based on that, and so. It was all about, and by the way, green was not a vocabulary, so sustainability is the thing that, so we, when we built a camp, and most people don't know this, but we have a percolation system in the parking lot, that's why the parking lot is slant, most people think we screw it up, but all the water in that property gets percolated with under underneath, and, and this is stuff we really have to just go kind of like take risk on and fight City Hall because they... You know they had they didn't approve a lot of the sustainable stuff today. Um, you know we actually helped write the green initiative here for the city of Costa Mesa, but right. You know today this stuff is like oh yeah grass roof right, right. You know? of course. But it was really challenging. But I think that's what that that's what was fun for us. But um, th- so that project came in through that whole you know healthy living. We brought in a vegan restaurant that was a partner with with native food, and we brought in yoga. And interesting enough, and you said something earlier that, you know, the lab was a smashing success. Honestly, it wasn't. You know, it really took us, I remember sitting in the parking lot where my office was in that metal building. It's a Japanese restaurant now. I'm looking at my parking, there's like nine cars in there. I'm like, oh my Lord, you know, <sighs> what do we get ourselves into? <laughs> and even the camp, honestly, I think it took probably a couple of years. Like I would even take my sophisticated friends. They were CEO. And they didn't get it. Of surfing companies. It was like, they just freaking didn't get get it. You know? And then all of a sudden the economy went bad and Mm. everybody ran out and bought a Prius, including my wife. And, you know, everybody got into yoga and, and, you know, organic foods kicked in and we were like right there, you know? It was just amazing how it just sort
0: of kicked in. Right. Uh, Okay. So those are those iterations. Again, I, and I credit you, I think those are they're 20 years ahead of time. And now, we, like you said, we talk about sustainability and buzzwords and things, and you were you were challenging the city on codes that they didn't even have, right? Like you said, you helped them. What is the future? C- can you give us any any sneak peeks on, I know we've had a conversation about something you're working on. I don't know if you're ready to share that, but I think it's really fascinating. Um, the thing with the housing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Can we talk about that? Sure. Um, can you give us a sense of what, where you're taking retail as an experience and as an environment? Where are you taking retail? Okay. Well, you know, one of the things that we're searching for is a new word for retail
1: because mm. you know it's just a. It is kind of an unpleasant it, it, word. It isn't honestly, it? is a. I don't know if it's unpleasant, but I think it it means certain things that the future don't look that way, you know? And so in terms of retail, like, are we building dress shops? No. Is it in our future to build dress shops? No. Uh, So I think there has been this um, situation where retail and dining and all of that stuff is sort of blended together. And what is the name of that? And what does that look like? You know, I think that's sort of the, but I think at the end of the day, everything we look at has to do with experiences and we find that experiences become exciting and are more sustainable and more resonating with our end user when you do hybrid of things um meaning you take two different industries and you combine them you know uh i mean a good example by the way this is just isn't something that i'm doing but i think To give you an example, you know, Tesla is a good example. Is it an automobile company or is it a tech company? You know, well, it's actually just a freaking computer on wheels. You know, it doesn't have any, it's only got 14 moving parts, I understand. So all of a sudden, you know, you have this tech company that came in and kicked the crap out of the auto industry. And I always say, Well, you mean to tell me that GM owned the market for 70 years, couldn't figure out an electric car? Oh, by the way, neither did BMW or Mercedes or any of these guys, you know? It took a tech guy. So I think I like going into these situations, not thinking as a retail developer. I like to go in and just come up with a different delivery system. And I think that's where we get newness, yeah, so in case of uh, current projects, you know we're looking to build i don't I wouldn't call it a downtown, but I think for a lack of terminology, I would call it a downtown where we bought series of homes and we're going to convert them into commercial uses. And the idea is to dine at people's homes. I went to Cuba many years ago before it opened up and there was few restaurants, but then the all of the cool places where you actually went to somebody's house to eat and the idea of sitting there in their home or sitting in their backyard and their kids are running around and they're cooking for you, like there was something like so cool about that, you know. So I think part of what we're doing there is that and, and some other uses and services. We just closed on fifty two lots in Long Beach, so we're looking at Doing something really cool in terms of a neighborhood there.
0: And I'm sorry, where did you buy the the this project with the houses? Where is that? That's in Garden Grove. In Garden Grove, yeah. And so, is that a is that a um is it a city block? Is it two sides of a street? Like houses it's, facing it's each other? It's three cover?
1: city. It's three city streets. Okay. And the houses are sort of popery through. Uh,
0: and and you might find what you might find a dining experience. You might find what else might you find as far as a um. An offering. You can eat,
1: you can meet, you can uh, have services like wellness services, you can go to a brewery and have the conversation with a brewmaster, there's event spaces, uh, there's gardens, there's community gardens. Uh, It's just, it's all interactive, you know.
0: And are you, as far as aesthetics from the street side, are you trying to keep the integrity of the indigenous neighborhood or? are you what's the vibe on the outside well
1: we're keeping the buildings we're really restoring I mean I think part of the work we do you know whether it was the packing house which is a 1919 building we have it on the national registry or the casino project down in San Clemente yeah
0: it's beautiful
1: and you know we uh, we own the Balboa theater now in on Balboa so we're going to restore that that. and this is all you know we like restoring yeah uh, because it's storytelling the old Packard automobile dealership we restored so I think we want to preserve the buildings but we just feel like that these types of situations have a adaptive reuse and repurpose so the idea of this was a house and as a matter of fact, we're going to put a little plaque in front of each house, like Joe the plumber used to live here from 1953 to you know, yeah. Who knows who the Joe plumber is, but I think it's part of the story that yeah. you know. And now you can go in here, you and have a beer, and you can sit in the garden. And there's a beer garden, you know, And like this next generation of life within these buildings. I, I think for me that just gives gives us a lot of depth, and it does give us authenticity, you know.
0: Well, there's no doubt, but and it's also just. It's really flipping that script and, and I think you've been really kind of consistent with your message throughout your development career on and I, I do think, you know, you, you opened up by talking about connectivity. And I think you're not building a mall, which has zero connectivity. You're you're talking about now you're talking about homes and entering mm. that that is a special place in people's. Yeah, it really hearts, does. The idea right? of a it home. it goes deep. Right. right. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think, I mean, it's just, it's cool. And it's like one of those things, like you're going to do it. You're going to pop this thing. And all these developers are going to come from all over the United States and they're going to go, oh, why didn't we do that? We <laughs> had the opportunity to do this guy I did. hope so. You know, <laughs> I, I'm sure that's going to be the case. So I I think, um, I, just a couple more things for you here. I, I think you shared, uh, I watched a talk and you talk about, and I don't want to get you in trouble. We don't, we can edit this out if you're not comfortable with it. But you, um you kind of made a comment about the Forever 21 being you know, 50,000 square feet of junk and you had this experience. Mm. And I think that's true and I, th- I think we've been kind of talking about that today. Um, I think you're doing the opposite of that. Mm. And then you went on to talk about a table that you came to that had a pair of jeans that retailed for $7. Can you mm. share that story with us in yeah, a couple?
1: Fun. I've said this story before so if you heard them, um, I apologize, but I guess you know, these are the things that I think do make us think the way we do. There are all these real life experiences, but um, the story is that, or the reality is that, you know, I uh, realized that the Saks Fifth Avenue store down at Mission Viejo Mall uh, went out. And, uh, and then I was really intrigued that Forever 21 moved in and this was, I think it's two or three story building and it's, it's a good 50,000 square foot. And I was just fascinated that a Forever 21 can occupy that that much space. Right. You know? So uh, after they were open, I ventured down and I walked through it and, you know, holy be alone. You know, it's a 50,000 square foot of Forever 21 fast fashion, right? And as I was standing and sort of daunted by walking through the store, I did see a rack of... Um, jeans, i I think they were like seven ninety nine yeah and I stood there for a moment and and spending so many years in the uh, <laughs> on the manufacturing <laughs> side, and I thought to myself, oh man, I twenty years ago, and you know, I made product everywhere, sure, I couldn't even in Bangladesh, I couldn't make a pair of jeans and put the buttons and the labels and the and the needling and pay somebody a decent salary and ship it across the water and clear it through uh, Long Beach and ship it into my store, get it into my system, advertise it, pay somebody. in three weeks. And put it all up on, (laughs) put it on a rack and sell it for $7.99 and make money. Impossible. And I was honestly just daunted by this. Yeah. And while I was just standing there pontificating over this thing, there was this young lady and this guy, and I always joke and say, you know, it looks like, yeah, they were happy, so it looks like they were married. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and she grabs this jean, you know. And uh, then I went walking through the rest of the store just to kind of check it out. And then on the way, there was a coffee place right outside, and it happened to be the lady and her boyfriend were just ahead of us. And uh, she's got the happy bag, you know. She bought the jeans, and she's. And I was right behind her when she ordered her coffee, and. She ordered some, you know, I don't even know what it was, but it's one of these sort of fancy designer coffees. And I believe she paid $6 or $6.50 for that cup of coffee. And while this whole thing was going on, I was still sort of emotional walking through that store. I just thought to myself, holy maloney, it's like, whoa, 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 she just spent (laughs) $7.99 Seven ninety nine <laughs> on a pair of freaking jeans, and she's spending six fifty on a cup of coffee. And so I started to think about the value yeah. system yeah. and the perceived value. And then you know I ordered my coffee, and then I realized that she actually sat there with her boyfriend and smiling and having a conversation. And I honestly then realized to myself that it wasn't about that cup of coffee; it was about the opportunity to sit there and have that conversation with her boyfriend that has the value and not necessarily the coffee. I call it intrinsic value, and this is something in this country we've never really looked at. I always joke and say, you know, you go to Italy and people have three-hour lunches. You go, oh, what the heck, don't people work around here? Because they value conversation, and that's different than consumption and that's why I call it connection as opposed to consumption. And so she then, she realizes that, by the way, I don't know for sure, but maybe she makes 15 bucks an hour, you know? I mean, this is a, this is a very young person that, so I then realized, she probably knows that she's going to buy that pair of jeans, it's going to make her butt look good for a couple of weeks, and then she's going to throw it in the washing machine and things going to disintegrate. <laughs>
0: right, and that's done. Where
1: that cup of coffee and that conversation has really deep deeper value for her. And that is an example that I just kind of use as, I mean, when I see that, I'm thinking, okay, 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 you know, I get it where people are going, you know, and how do you translate that into a development, you know?
0: Right. So I I think on the subconscious level, those are things like this intrinsic value. I mean, I'm sure those deep thoughts are with you as you're engineering future projects, Mm -hmm. right? And I think it's so great that we have someone like you to do that on behalf of Again, <laughs> you're you. scratching and it's like a validation, like these everyone they feel this unease with these shiny marble floors at South Coast Plaza and the super bright lights what's What's intimate about that or mm. what you feel like it's like being on an operating table? you know, mm. so you come at it from the inverse and say, well, why do we why are we mm. doing it that way?" Mm. So what I really think we get down to, I think you're solving a great problem, which which is the This whole idea of um, the vanity of our generation and Mm -hmm. and being the selfies in our phones, and now you're talking about creating environments and intimate experiences where people can actually put their phones down, share a craft beer in someone's home, for Mm -hmm. example, in the project Mm -hmm. you're working on, and really helping humans be humans and have that connective tissue. And I I just think that does seem, Mm -hmm. it sounds crazy to say, but it it does seem Mm -hmm. like that's the next Mm -hmm. iteration of an evolution of um, where this is all going. Yeah, that's good, Ryan, yeah. So, listen, I could talk to you all day. Uh, You're a busy dude. Um, (laughs) We're sitting in this beautiful music studio. I feel like maybe we should jam now. Yeah, yeah, we should. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So um, I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, it's been a real pleasure. You're like one of my favorite people. I really enjoyed our time. Vice versa. Thank you very much. Cool, great, man. Great hanging out with you. So, thank you. Cool. So, uh, if you guys liked what you hear, uh, go check out Instagram. Got to do the plugs. Uh, Brevity Code Show on Instagram, brevitycode.com. Uh, if you like it, subscribe, people. You will get more in your feeds. Otherwise, uh, we've got some great shows coming up, and I look forward to sharing more with you guys next time.